Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 12. And uh, last week, uh, we were in verses 11 and 12, and we saw the importance of having a, a work of God in our lives. And we talked about uh, that quite extensively last week. And, you know, and when you start to talk about God doing something in your life, you know, I know in my own personal life, you know, I've kind of looked at what God does in my life and wants to do in my life and basically wants to do the same thing in your life. And, you know, I've broken it down for myself just so better to understand it. You know, two aspects of real Bible Christianity. And uh, unfortunately, you know, most of God's people never fully realize uh, any of these, these two in their Christian life. And it's a tragedy. But, you know, we get the idea that Christianity is just going to church and, you know, and uh, trying to do the best you can and, you know, and not going to certain places or saying certain things or doing things you shouldn't do. And obviously that's uh, important if you're to be separated from the world. But there's two fundamental real Bible aspects to being a Christian. And the first one is, and I use this phrase quite often, so it's not new to you, but the first one is what I call a working knowledge uh, of the Word of God. Last week, we saw how the Bible says that we are to study the show thyself approve unto God a workman. And when a Christian has a working knowledge of the Word of God, they, that's, that's you learning how to use the Bible, uh, the, making the Bible work for you, you know, making it work for you in your own personal life being able to solve issues in your life when you struggle with them or be able to uh, deal with things when it comes up in your life. You know, life, very few people go through life without having some form of tragedy or some kind of problem. And, and uh, in your own personal life, it gives you the ability to have the Bible work for you, uh, if work for you in dealing with others. God is going to take you, or he wants to take you anyhow, and he wants to put you in scenarios where you can be there for somebody else. That's his whole desire. That's the whole concept of Christianity, taking your life and matching it up with somebody else. And when you have a working knowledge of the Bible, it's, it, it helps you deal with other people. Part of what we do in the people ministry, and really in the singles ministry, helping people and what... I do it in just about everything. Many of you have worked with me. You teach the Bible. You disciple or you're on different levels uh, giving, laying the Bible out. And, and you know that the moment you start getting into the Bible and laying out things, whether it's discipleship, discipleship two, whatever, you know people are going to open up to you about what they're struggling with. The Bible in any format is one of the greatest keys to opening up where people are at. And then, of course, Thirdly, just understanding the mind of God, what God is doing, where God is at, what he wants to accomplish, being able to take the Bible apart and put it back together again. Then the second thing is a working relationship with the Lord. And that's you learning how to let God use you. The first one, you learn how to use the Word of God. The second one, you learn how to let God use you use you to accomplish that work that we talked about last week for him, accomplishing what he actually saved us for. You know, in the hard reality, the facts of the Christian life are simply, you can't have one without the other. <clears throat> Most Christians, honestly, don't have either one. But you cannot have one without the You simply cannot have the uh, relationship with the Word of God, the working knowledge, and not have the second. 
they go together. And, and many things like that in the Bible. We're big today on spiritual gifts, you know. You can read books on it. Everybody wants to talk about your spiritual gift and all of those aspects. But here again, that's another subject that goes right along with this. Because in the Bible, you have spiritual gifts. That's the power of God in your life. But then you have what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit, and that's the character of God in your life. And it's the same way uh, in that as it is with this. You can't have no power in your life with God without first having the character of God in your life. And you see that many things go hand in hand in the Bible. A Bible that works for you and a Christianity that works for the Lord. That's what we want to have. And everything we do here in this church, everything I try to accomplish in your life, whether it be one-on-one or as we work together, I try to bring you to that, to that end. Last week, we looked at Proverbs chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, and I, I showed you the impact of what happens when we go into spiritual poverty. The Bible talked a lot about it, about not working and getting what you need to have from the Word of God. And when we refuse to let God to do the work in us that He started at salvation, we talked about how that grieves the Holy Spirit of God. I gave you a great verse in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that said, He hath begun a good work in you, perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. That's true. The day you got saved, God began a work in your life. God wants the honor and glory out of our lives and everything that we do. And many times we have a, we have a wrong way of looking at it. And, you know, I, I, I want to tell you, and I want you to understand, no matter what you decide to do, some of you will give your life to God and God will use you and you'll touch a lot of people's lives. Some of you may keep your life to yourself and never do anything for God. But I want you to know, when God's word says that he began a good work in you, He's going to get the honor and glory out of your life one way or the other. It's just that simple. You'll do a work for God, and and people will get blessed, and you'll see the power of God in your life, and God will get the honor and glory out of that. In some cases, God's people won't do the work of God. And people see your spiritual poverty. They see uh, your lack of understanding. They see the lazy attitude and the careless approach to the things of God. And God, through his chastisement, dealing with those things in our lives, our spiritual poverty, the fact that we lose our family and wreck our home and and, uh, the failed relationship that we have with God and all of the things that (coughs) Christians get into that just keeps coming up empty. And God uses that to warn others that a life like that is only a couple bad choices away. You know, when I see somebody really mess it up or I see a Christian's life that, <clears throat> that doesn't uh, match up to God or they seemingly just don't care, I love people and I care for people and I want to see people do what's right. And I'm not going to lie to you and say that when I see Christians that don't do what's right with God, it frustrates me to a certain degree. But I never let it get to the point where it comes into a personal thing in my life. When I look at that, you know what I think? When I look at that, instead of looking at them and thinking that they're terrible, because I don't ever think anybody's terrible other than cases in the Bible where you have some really terrible people, but I look at them and I look at the struggles that they go through and I look where they're at, and instead of looking at them, and I may have to deal with it. I may have to deal with it in a harsh way and deal with it in a reality way. But even in all of that, when I look at where they're at, the thing that I focus on is the fact is, you know what, where they're at, is only about three bad choices for me to get where I'm at to where they're at. 
That's how you got to look at it. I've told you two valuable formats for learning. One is to learn by your mistakes, and the other is to learn by the mistakes of others. Not in a judgmental way, but realizing that in any person, no matter what they do or how bad they blow it, you and I are only a couple of steps away, a couple of bad choices away from putting ourselves in the same scenario. And God will get the honor and glory out of that. Romans chapter 9, verse 21, and again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, he tells us very clearly that God has vessels of honor and he has vessels of dishonor. And he tells us in 2 Timothy 2 that we as Christians are to purge ourselves from the vessels of dishonor. And we learn from it. We learn from it. Now today, as we move on into this chapter, we again will see some great practical truths for uh, your everyday life. Now, I don't know if you've picked up on this or not. I don't know how, how quickly you're looking for little things in the Bible. But you'll note in this chapter, in fact, the last couple of chapters, we have had no paragraph marks. <clears throat> I made it a big <clears throat> deal to tell you about paragraph marks and how important they are in the Bible. <clears throat> but it's just as important when you don't see them in the Bible. And now in this chapter, and I, if I remember right, the last couple of chapters, we've had no paragraph marks. Why is that? Because... These Proverbs now that we're studying all will form themselves around one main principle in one concept or thought. A paragraph mark will break up thoughts and put them in some kind of order or at least show you a different context. But when you don't have them, you know that the whole chapter or whatever you're reading is all going to one central thought and one central theme. And there's no interruption of the thought process by the paragraph marks. Now, let me read for you Proverbs chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. This is where we're going to be today. <clears throat> and it says this. The wicked is snared by the transgressions of his lips, but the just shall come out of trouble. A man shall be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, and the recompense of a man's hands shall be rendered unto him. Let's pray. Father... <clears throat> We do thank you and praise you today for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for uh, the folks that have come out today. We pray your blessings upon this service that you'd help me uh, to convey to their hearts what you'd have them to see out of your word. We thank you, Lord, for our church and for its stand on the word of God and for uh, the good host of great men and women and young men and young ladies and boys and girls and families that you brought to our church and continue to bring. We now pray that, Father, your blessings upon all of it. We love you. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. <clears throat> now, Proverbs is one of the most <clears throat> powerful doctrinal and prophetic books in all of the Bible. You're going to find that in a doctrinal sense, in a prophetic sense, it's all loaded dealing with the nation of Israel, dealing with the tribulation period, dealing with the Antichrist, and almost every facet of it. And we pointed those things out as we've come through. It's also rich in history from a historical perspective. It gives us great insight into the times of Solomon's life and where he's at and what he's trying to accomplish and what he's doing. But along with that, you'd be hard-pressed to find another book in the Bible that just continually, I mean verse after verse, chapter after chapter, that keeps laying out good, solid, practical, everyday living principles for all of us to live our lives by. And it's built around two key men in the Bible. And those two key men in the Bible are the same two key people that you have 
on planet Earth as we deal with life, a wise man and a foolish man. And we find the, the eternal and the physical consequences of each man, what he goes through. And we can learn from both. <clears throat> now, these verses deal with what a man will say today. And that's very important, <clears throat> what comes out of a man's mouth. And we also know that what comes out of our mouth will originate from what's in our hearts. I hear people say all the time, well, I just follow in my heart. I hear people give advice. Well, just really follow your heart. Well, that's the worst thing you can do. And the worst thing you can do because Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You never want to follow your heart. If you want to follow a heart, follow God's heart. That's the one you want to follow. Matthew 6, 21 says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And wise man or foolish man, your treasure will either be the world or your treasure will be the word. And based on that, the Bible says, and this is what Proverbs chapter 12, 13 and 14, where we're at today is talking about. He says in Matthew 12, verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is deep inside our heart is what comes out of our mouth. And when a man is unsaved or a man is a saved man, but he's out of fellowship with God, then he'll speak to where his heart is. And the things of the world will come out. When a man's heart is like God's heart, and by the way, when that's what happens when you get saved. God gives you a new heart, Psalms chapter 40. He puts a new song in your mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and trust in the Lord. He takes the old thing out and puts all the new in. And so when a man now speaks uh, based on the heart that he has like God's heart, then you get to see where his heart is because what comes out of his mouth is the things of the word. One of them is the things of the world. The other will be the things of the word. And we talk about, you know, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about defining yourself, that people will define themselves. You do that by the way you speak. And if people really want the key to where people are at, just listen to what they're saying and what comes out of their mouth. And you define yourself by the, by the way that you speak, who you really are, where your treasure really is. And a great a proof of that is a great principle in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 3, that says a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words because he defines himself. You know, it's, it's typical, you know, and nothing will show us more where uh, in a man's heart he is than what comes out of his mouth in a, you know, in a lifestyle conversation, in a, you know, in a, on a consistent basis. And, uh, you know, in the Bible, the word conversation is you, it's an old English word. We, 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 we don't use it really the way that it should be used uh, in the Bible. But in the Bible, the word conversation is interchanged many times for the word lifestyle. And the King James translators, and when the Bible was written, God's Holy Spirit knew how important that was because so you find the word conversation changed with what should be a lifestyle because they knew that whatever your lifestyle is will be based on your conversation and vice versa. And that's the way it works. And it's a thing where these two things are, are, are very important. And uh, the verse says that a man is snared by the transgression of his lips. Now, when we start to look at this verse, and we're going to kind of just take these verses apart today and, and squeeze everything out of them when we can, you're going to find two things here that you'll want to get down. Two ways that a man will snare himself with his own words. An, an evil man, a man is not doing right. 
Now, if anybody knows just a little bit about the Bible, you know it's wrong to speak in a way that hurts people or destroys people or hurts and tries to destroy the work of God. You know, backbiters, gossip, you know, slander, personal attacks to hurt somebody. I mean, all you got to do is get on somebody's Facebook and, boy, somebody's slamming somebody all the time. Uh, it happens uh, in people, you know, when they get a problem with somebody, they'll rip them up one side and down the other. And, you, and we, we hear it all the time. You listen to it all the time. But a man defines himself by the things that he says. And you, as a Christian, when you have understanding, you know that that's not right. So you know to stay away from it. It's like if somebody came into Bible study on Thursday night and they got up and they started to ask a lengthy question and they started to teach some heresy, you know, baptism for salvation or tongues or or whatever, you know, they just start going off and laying all this bad doctrine out. Almost without exception, everybody would know that that's not the Bible teaching on the subject. And out of that man's lips, everybody would know that he's teaching bad doctrine and that would snare him. You'd see it in a second. It would define him. And it's the same way here. A man is snared by the things that he says. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know when a man continually or a woman continually blasts negative things about people that they don't really even have any association with. I know everybody can have problems with people. I get that. But you find people that, that just go off on anything because of the way they are. They define themselves. And what comes from the lips? Transgressions of the lips, verse 13, or good fruit out of his mouth, verse 14. Now, the second thing is this, that, he, that you get out of that. He snares himself by his lips and what comes out of his mouth based on his heart attitude, at either the judgment seat of Christ, if he's a saved man, or the great white throne judgment if he's an unsaved man. You know, in Job chapter 26, I've taught this to you before and given it to you before. Most likely in Job chapter 26, verses 1 through 4, you got the six questions probably that God's going to ask at the judgment seat of Christ of you and me. And I say that not just flippantly, but after years of searching that out and studying that and laying it out, I've told you this before. Uh, these six questions, the only one that can legitimately answer them are a born-again New Testament Christian. Because these six questions are very specific about things that only take place in the church. And I'm not going to go through them all this morning. We've been through it many, many times. But of the six, number five and number six, I think, are the worst. Now, when you come down in Job chapter 26, verse 4, the last two that question that he asks is simply this. To whom hast thou uttered words? Who you talked to? And whose spirit came from thee? Those two questions deal with the, what comes out of your mouth and why it came out the way it did. And the implication is overwhelming to me because at the judgment seat of Christ will be judged on these six things, but the last two are pretty incredible. And what comes out of your mouth to who and whose spirit was behind what you said? I've told you this before. Einstein, back in the 30s, when he was working on relativity and working on all of those things that are way beyond most of us, they came up with a theory that whatever you say goes out of your mouth and moves forever. 
the example that they used was that in the 30s that if you could get into a rocket ship fast enough, overcome the speed of sound, overcome the speed of light, you would, you would eventually catch up and hear the exact words of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. In other words, your words don't just fall empty. When you project them out, they move out. Everybody's seen the movie with Jodie Foster, Contact, where she is one of these guys who were looking with the big radio telescopes to find extraterrestrial life, the SETI program, and how that accidentally or accidentally one day she starts picking up these signals that came from Vega. The whole world now is enthralled. Where once they thought she was an idiot and wasting her time, now that she struck gold, everybody thinks, everybody wants to get in on it. And when they finally put it all together, they find out that when they put it on a screen and they unencrypt it and get all this stuff, they find that what they got was Adolf Hitler in 1933 at the Munich Games of the Olympics giving him the open ceremony, and they all about have a heart attack. I mean, you'll find an alien life, and the first representative you want to give them is Adolf Hitler. That's not probably the best thing to do. And, but what happened was, is that when Adolf Hitler gave the address in 1933 at the Nuremberg Stadium, it opened that uh, Olympic, that was the first time that it was ever broadcast over primitive TV. And those, that speech went out in space. And when it went out in space, it kept moving. Now, Vega is 4.2 light years away. That means if you got an air, uh, a rocket ship that traveled 186,000 miles a second to speed of light, take you four and a half years to get there, four and a half years to go back. So what happened was that this thing was moving out there all that time, and they found it, and then they sent back an answer showing that what you say in the movie, anyhow, that... Einstein's theory was correct that whatever you project keeps going out. Now, I've got a terrible nightmare that I have about, oh, more than I'd like to have it. And it is standing at the judgment seat of Christ and standing there. And over here on my left is all these big tubes. And every one of them's got a heading over them. Sports, hunting, fishing, jibber-jabber, whatever. And just about the time... I'm going to give an account for the Lord for what I've said in the spirit behind what I said. All those words have been traveling through space now for years and years and years at the speed of light show up at the exact moment that I'm standing there and every word that I ever spoke in my life and everything I ever said goes into a category of what it was said about what if when we get there, and this is my nightmare, what if when we get there that the category on sports is full, the category on work is full, the category on everything in our life, family is to the brim, but when it comes to the things of God, it's empty. To whom hast thou uttered words and whose spirit came from thee? Now, I don't know if you know that there's only four spirits listed in the Bible. Man can have three of them. The first spirit is the spirit of an animal. Now, we know that animals don't have souls, but animals have a spirit. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 21 tells us that. Now, you can't have an animal spirit. That's one spirit that you can't get. But the other three you can. As a human being, you have a human spirit. That's the number two. We know that if you're saved, 
You have God's spirit. That's number three. And you know, if you're unsaved or just generally in the world, you have the devil's spirit. So those three spirits, man's spirit, that's your human spirit, God's spirit, that's the good fruit out of a man's mouth, the devil's spirit, that's the transgression of a man's lips. They're the spirits that project what comes out of our mouths. Our lips of a transgression or lips of a, that produces fruit. Now look at the last part of verse 13. But the just shall come out of trouble. It says, a man shall be snared by the transgression of his lips, but the just shall come out of trouble. Now, doctrinally, and you probably need to get this down if you don't have it in your Bible already. Doctrinally, the wicked and the evil man, all through Proverbs, will be the Antichrist and his crowd, doctrinally, prophetically. And they're up against God's righteous people, the nation of Israel. You should know that already. These two make doctrinally the book of Proverbs when we look at it. The wise son is the nation of Israel that follows God. The foolish son are all the crowd that goes after the Antichrist and rejects God and foolishly thinks that they can destroy the nation of Israel, hence they're called a fool. But then you have the trouble. Whenever you find it in the Bible, it will always be a key to the context. The word trouble in the Bible will always probably in most cases, I, I, don't, I may be an exception, but I don't think I've ever seen one or I can think of one right now, but it will always be a reference to the tribulation period. Sometimes it's called Jacob's time of trouble. Sometimes it's just called a time of trouble. Sometimes it's called troublous times. Sometimes it's called just trouble. But in a practical application, it's talking about the people who in your life and my life, in Christianity, who will hate the work of God and hate the workers of God and transgress them against them with the words of their lips and what they say about them. You know, it's no secret that men and women who take a stand for God will get clobbered by the world. And many times, probably more so than by the world, by other God's people, other Christians, who will never take a stand for anything uh, for God publicly. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse two, uh, 12, it says, uh, And you, uh, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If you take a stand for God and you decide to do a work for God, I'm here to tell you right now, there will be a price that you pay for that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, that if we suffer with him, we will be glorified together. So there's a payoff, a recompense for it. We'll talk about that a little bit later, too. We know our greatest example, Paul went through tremendous suffering at the hands of the world, but also through the hands of other Christians for his own stand on the gospel. And so will you. And I want to tell you that because we talk about a work for God, doing something for God. I want to be honest with you. This here is the fundamental reason why many of God's people will never do a work for God because of the trouble it brings. They're not up to the warfare that comes by taking a stand. Taking on the heresies head on. Dealing with and identifying the wolves in sheep's clothing. You know, I got a message I'm going to preach to you at some point. I got to wait for one more event to happen. But when it happens, it will be probably 
one of one of uh, one of the best things that you'll ever have to hear in your life to put things in perspective for you. But I can't do it just yet. But I, I understand where my roots are. I probably have a greater appreciation for the Word of God and where uh, where we're at as a church than probably many of you do. And I get that. I understand that. When I got saved and I started to get into Christianity, I wanted to make sure I had the right thing. You're looking at a guy who, when he first got into this, tried everything. I mean, I looked at Roman Catholicism. I went through the Reader's Digest back then, used to have a little thing where you, you sent it in and they brought you through uh, all the catechism classes through the mail. And uh, when you proved them all, you got a little certificate in the mail that you could go and present it to a priest and be baptized and become a Catholic. I got my certificate. I just never did anything with it. But I wanted to see if that's what the truth was. I, I looked at I, I looked at being a Jehovah Witness. You know, back then I thought that uh, you know maybe they were the real deal because they were so so passionate about what they wanted to do. I've been around Christians all my life, and I'll be honest, I never saw a passion in most of Christians like I did in the Jehovah Witnesses. But I only had to have one or two meetings with them, and I found out that they they, they didn't know what was going on. We didn't have any Mormons back where I lived, so that was never really an option for me. We had a lot of charismatics, and I checked them out. But I never could dance very well. <laughs> and all this, you know, and I, and I, 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 I prove all things. On time I had, I had a, I wanted to find out the charismatic church was really the up and up deal. And I had a buddy of mine, and I said, hey, I'm talking with these guys. And he spoke, he spoke um, Cherokee or Chautauqua or some Indian name. I started pretty well. And I said, I want you to help me. So uh, he came over, and, and uh, uh, I told this guy, I said, now, my buddy here, uh, you know, we were in, said, he speaks in tongues. And I said, uh, I, I, he wants to, he's got a message he wants to speak, and he wants you to interpret and a guy said, oh, absolutely. So he goes off for about five or six minutes. I don't know what he was saying, but it was in his native Chickawa Indian language. When he was done, the charismatic began to interpret what he said. My buddy stopped him and I said, you're a fraud. That's not what I said. And I was the end of that. Didn't want to be one of them anymore. I looked all over the place to find the truth. And when I found it, when I finally came to the place that I found it, then I went after it with everything that I had. And I micro-examined it, got it to the point where I looked at every facet of it. So I say all that to have to say. I, I have a somewhat probably a, a deeper and a better appreciation uh, than a lot of God's people today, especially younger Christians, maybe some of the older folks, uh, not so much. But uh, that, Because I realize that, uh, uh, you know, if you go down in Texas and you mention the name J. Frank Norris, you get lynched in some places down there. J. Frank Norris is one of the most loved and one of the most hated guys that you'll ever find on this planet. He lived back in the 20s and the 30s, and he died right around the end of the 40s. And there's people today that every time they say his name down south will spit. And there's a lot of northerners up here that all they ever hear is the negative stuff about J. Frank Norris. And, hey, I want to tell you, he's a character. He's a character. 
He broke from the Southern Baptist Convention and started what we know as fundamentalism today. And I want to be honest with you, the reason you have a Bible in your lap that you know is the absolute perfect Word of God starts with J. Frank Norris. And sometimes it just bothers me when people want to trash him because they don't like him, because they don't understand him. But I want to tell you something. Without him, you wouldn't have the Bible you have today. I appreciate what he did. They look at a man like that and see what they don't like, but what they don't see is the stand that he had to take and the price that he paid. You would have not survived all that he went through if you was a wimp like most of God's people today. Well, there was a guy one time that called him up on the phone and said, you blankety-blank, I'm going to come down and blow your blankety-blank head off. And he says, I'll be here till 3 o'clock. Guy comes in the church, comes into the office, pulls out a six-gun. He beats him to the draw and shoots him right in his church office. He's preaching one time about the drug lords and all the booze and all the crime and corruption in a town in Texas. And one of the big labor guys challenged him out and and, and said he was going to have him hung and going to do this and do that. And the guy was drunk one night, driving down the road with a girlfriend in his car that wasn't his wife, and he got off control and he hit an abutment and his brains were splattered all over the place. J. Frank Norris went down and picked up a piece of his brain, put it in a jar, put it on the pulpit Sunday morning and preached on liquor. Try that today. People want to criticize him for what he was. Hey, I know he did some unorthodox thing, but you know what? You better understand the stand he had to take that other guys weren't willing to take. And because of that stand, we have the Bible today. I'll tell you another one. You can get on the web and type in Peter S. Ruckman. You'll get 180 pages of the most blasted stuff you ever saw in your life. And there's people who hate him. I've known the man for 45 years. And he's as rough as they come, and he's, a, he's J. Frank Norris. But God needed somebody else after Norris was gone to keep that Bible. And the only reason, the only reason you have a Bible today that you can believe and you can trust is because those two men were willing to take a stand. And I'm telling you, People say, well, I don't like this. I don't like the name calling. Hey, some people need to have their names called out. They say, well, you know, he's crude and rough. Let me tell you something. They came out of a world that wanted to absolutely do away with them. I sat in Camp Trough back in the 70s while he sat in Mel Sabaka's uh, uh, house weeping because his wife, when he went into the ministry, his unsafe wife deserted him left him, and for 25 years, that man stayed single, preaching the Word of God, doing what God said. And you know what Bible colleges would do that hated him because of that book? They would send, find out where he's preaching, send call girls up to his room to try to get him to fall. That's the price that he paid. They'd take his picture, airbrush in, and put him in through Photoshop in bars with two gals sitting on each side, and then put it on the Internet. You bet they were rough. You bet they were tough because of what they were up against. And they paid the price 
And yet some of God's people that hold the very Bible that you would not have in your lap today criticize the very man who paid the price for you to have it when you paid nothing. Now, you wouldn't have a problem if I get up here and laid out sexual perversions, uh, perversion people, uh, people who are sexual perverts. You wouldn't have a problem with that. You'd thank me for that. Because you don't want your child part of that. But if I get up here and, and talked about biblical predators, mm. biblical perverters, oh, now you're not so happy with me. Over the years, I've seen this phenomena. I've seen many a pastor's own people will criticize him for the things he says or what he calls people who are lazy or, or hate the work of God. They, they criti- they've never seen the thousands of lives that, that those kind of people have destroyed. They've never picked up a broken marriage, never picked up the pieces of somebody's life who has lost their faith in the Word of God because of some of these people. They've never had to deal with it. They've never had to pick up the pieces. They've never had to struggle and sit there and listen to them and with all the agony they go through. I completely understand why they do that. I do. God bless their hearts. I get it. Because they played it safe all of their life. All of their Christian life. They've never had to deal with the idiots out there uh, to get their Bible. They've never had to pick up the pieces of a broken life or a broken marriage. They've never had to do any of that. They've kept their hands squeaky clean. Everybody loves them. Uh, they, God, love them. Uh, they've never been in a real spiritual battle and a good fight one day in their life. I get it. And God hug them. They've never had to stand for anything that ever got people mad at them. They just let the pastors take all the flack. And they just enjoy all the Bible they get without ever having to get their hands dirty. And then have the audacity to criticize him. Criticize him for the stand that he takes so they can have a real Bible. Let me tell you something. If it wouldn't be for those two men, you'd be in some lackadaisical dead church today that believed in same-sex marriages, that didn't have a Bible, that believed in nicey-nicey, one of those smooth evangelical messes that just goes along with everybody, and you wouldn't even know you had a Bible. Two guys paid the price. Where was everybody else? This is the fundamental reason some of God's people will never do a work for God. It costs them too much. They're going to always play it safe. They're always going to make sure they offend no one. They can't handle anybody talking about them or blasting them on Facebook or putting them up here or saying this. They just would fall apart. They've never took a stand for anything and they can't. And yet they got the guts to criticize somebody out there that does. And when they reap the benefits of what the price that they paid. As old Edmund Burke said, and oh, I think he was even an unsaved British philosopher, but he sure had it right. He said, evil triumphs when good men do nothing. And yet I, I want to say to you today, 
Never worry about what people say about you. Never worry what they think about you when you just preach the book. You know why? Great principle. For the just shall come out of trouble. That's why. There's not one person ever on this planet, no matter how wicked or evil he or she was or is, one time ever stopped what God was doing in a person's life. God always gave him the ultimate victory. You know why? Because greater is in he to send you to send the world. That's why. You're going to come out of it okay because the just shall come out of trouble. That book stands, and whoever stands with it stands too. It's just that simple. Look at verse 14. A man shall be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, and the recompense of a man's hand shall be rendered unto him. Now, boy, that's a great principle. And here's two great aspects to this verse that we need to see. A man shall be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth. Last week we talked about being satisfied by the bread, the Word of God, that you work, you labor to get the good. Being satisfied in life by yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit of God inside us who wants to do the work through us. Now today we'll take it one step further. Where the, where the work of God starts within our heart, it then will manifest itself in what we say. Just as a wicked man or woman spews out wicked things, the child of God spews out good things. And there's no greater satisfaction in life than to see the satisfaction that takes place in others' lives that God used you to bring into their lives by what you've taught them. Preaching the Bible will have two aspects to it. Teaching the Bible will have two aspects to it also, the same two. The first thing it does, it pierces the spirit of man. That's your will. That's where you feel the conviction. That's where it needs to get broken. And once it breaks you, it doesn't leave you broken. This is the difference between slander and preaching. Preaching may beat you up as it pierces your spirit. But the second aspect of preaching and teaching is it heals that spirit in the heart of man. The lips of a transgressor will hurt you, but they'll never heal you. Preaching may hurt you temporarily as it pierces you, but it has the power to heal man's heart and bring man to God. And that's why you really don't care what the trouble is, causes you with people who don't like the Bible. And when you actually see that happen, when you're actually involved in a person's life, it's quite incredible. And it's more satisfying than anything else in life. I think the world of medicine is absolutely one of the most incredible things. To watch where medicine has come from to where it's at. And I marvel. I just marvel at doctors who can... I mean, any doctor who does those things. But, I mean, you get into the thing where they're doing liver transplants. They're doing kidney transplants. And they're doing heart transplants. Can you imagine that? Who would have thought 20, 30, 40 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, but who would have thought that 30, 40 years ago that you could actually, I mean, do you realize, I mean, we said, well, he had a heart transplant. Oh, yeah, that's like you had your big tooth pulled. You kidding me? They got to open you up, take out the bad heart, keep while that heart is out, hook you up to some kind of sump pump that keeps you moving. 
Doc, I hope I'm getting this anywhere nearly right here. They trash the old one, pick up the other one, put it in, and then rewire it. I mean, you know how many hookups that is? That's incredible to me. I mean, I don't know if they'll ever get to the place where they can do brain transplants. I don't know. That probably is way out of the realm. But heart transplants at one time, you thought, if they ever do brain transplants, I got a list of you that I want to talk about. I marvel at that. I marvel at a man that can go in and open up the human body, see the heart, take the heart out, keep the person alive. Another heart from another donor puts it in there and then hooks it back up. And then that man lives with another man's heart in his chest. I was, and the thing that got me thinking of this, I was watching Dick Cheney uh, this week in a, in a discussion, and they asked him how he was doing, and I had forgotten this, but he had a heart transplant three years ago. Three years ago, he had his heart taken out and another heart put in, and here he is going as good as he did before. It, it absolutely amazes me. And yet I got to tell you this. I mean, I bet you, I, 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 I bet you when a doctor goes, I know he's wore out, I know he's tired, I know he's probably after all those hours of surgery and all the post-op stuff he's got, but he has got to have, he has got to have the greatest sense of satisfaction of what he just did. But I'm going to tell you something. Even with that, there's no greater satisfaction in all the world. It even beats that, as good as that is. And I take nothing away from that. But the greatest satisfaction when you learn how to do a spiritual heart transplant. Amen. You take that marriage that is broken. That from the world's standpoint, it's over. But from God's standpoint, you know it's not. And where the world looks at a man with a bad heart and he says, he's got a bad heart, he's going to die. The doctor says, you know what, I can fix that. The world will look at a marriage with two kids and they'll look at that thing and they'll say, it's over, it's done. But a spiritual physician looks at it and says, no, no, I can fix that. Amen. What satisfaction you have when you know, not just that you did it, forget that, praise the Lord, but the fact that you and me, a worthless, godless sinner who deserves to scream our lungs out in hell, God would love us enough and care enough for us to come down and not only just save us, but then get in me and say, you know what, let's do some heart surgery today. Let's get this guy, this gal off of this addiction. Let's get him past this struggle. We were at the thing last week for the parents, and I'll tell you, while the kids had their activity and Charles gave his testimony, I'll tell you, buddy, you talk about God coming down and doing some surgery. It was the most amazing thing I have ever heard in my life. I'm telling you, when I see people like that, I know to myself, God's got something special because I'll tell you what, the odds against what happened and turning that around is more than the electrons in the universe. <laughs> but God came down and did what God does. You know why? Because he is the great physician. Amen. And when the world looks at it and says, it can't be fixed, God takes Whoever the physician at, in attendance at that point. When Rob works the, works the emergency room and somebody comes in, he looks at it. He's the guy, man. He's the guy who's got to do what needs to be done. And he's been trained to do it. There's no other doctor around. He's there. It's his deal. And you know what? You will be 
if you train yourself and let God do it, you will become the attending physician in the casualties spiritually of this whole world. And God will teach you what to do. It's incredible. That's why you really don't care about the trouble it causes you with the people who don't like the Bible. And there'll be plenty of them. You'll watch God put a marriage back together, take that addiction away, take you out of of a life of sin, establish you in the Word of God, give you the character qualities of Christ, and knowing hard that God is unworthy as we are, God used you to do it because you decided to do a work for Him. I don't know what you think of Donald Trump. I've heard a lot of people say that, well, he's just a big boy. Well, you know, last eight or nine or ten years, this country's been bullied by everybody else in the world. Maybe it's time we get us a boy. I don't know. I don't care, really. I'm, I'm, I'm apolitical. It doesn't matter either way to me. But I think I like about him, and I think most people like about him, he ain't afraid of anybody. This world, this country, is so sick and tired of lying politicians that he can get up and say anything about anything, and as long as it's hardline in the truth, they like it. He's an amazing guy. He's completely, totally incorrect politically. He's going to build a wall down in Mexico and make the Mexicans pay for it. He's going to bus up 12 million illegals on buses, ship them back. Somebody says, are you going to rip up those families of the kids that were born here and American citizens? Oh, no, I'm not going to rip up any families. We're sending them all back. That's crazy. But at least somebody is now doing something. See? He takes on everybody. He ain't afraid of anybody. Now, I use him as an example because do you know why that is? Because he's got more money than anybody on the planet. He can buy and sell his enemies. So he doesn't have to fear them. He'll bury them. You want to sue him? He's got a whole team of lawyers. He'll run up your legal fees under the millions of dollars. Millions of dollars is just chump change to him. He'll bury you. Now that's power. It's not necessarily that he's a strong, brave man by nature. Maybe he is. I don't know. But when you have two or three billion dollars and you can spend your enemies under the table, you know you don't have to be afraid of anybody or what they think about you. He got a they'll go in here about the about the fence down in Mexico and, and the Spanish TV pulled out of the Miss America pageant. Like we're gonna show you. He turns around and sues him for four hundred and fifty million dollars. Now four hundred and fifty million dollars of Spanish TV is a lot of dineros. That's his bar tab on a weekend. He'll bury them. He'll run their legal fees up so high that he'll just absolutely bury them. And you don't have to be afraid of anybody when you got that kind of power, when you got that kind of riches. But I want you to know, and here's my point. It's the same way 
with you as a Christian. If you know your Bible, a working knowledge of the Scriptures, and you have understanding, and you have God's work going on in your house, your spiritual wealth will put Donald Trump on the streets as a homeless beggar. You have a hundred zillion dollars in your bank account spiritually every day. The spiritual understanding and insight and truth from a book that God gave you that many times somebody else paid the price for. You're richer than your enemies and you're smarter too. So you never have to fear them. You can buy or sell them with the Bible. If you ever get a chance... I think John Busquets probably got them all, but we may have some in the back. You ought to just watch one or two of these idiots who try to debate Ruckman on the Bible. You talk about somebody destroying somebody. I have, I have, uh, these guys come down here like they're going to show, and he puts them under the table. I watched him take on Carl Keating one time, which was the head of the Catholic Church, and he buried him, and I timed it. In 26 seconds, it was over. It may have went on for another hour and a half, but as far as anything ever getting accomplished, he killed him in 26 seconds with one thing. That's you. When you have the riches and glory by Christ Jesus, your enemies can't ever spend, outspend you spiritually. You'll bury them. That's why they'll only take cheap shots behind your back and never show up one-on-one with you. They know they'll get buried with what you know about the Bible. Because you're richer than your enemies and you're smarter too. So you never have to fear them. You can buy and sell them with the Bible that God has given you. David understood this in Psalms 119, verse 97 through 104. He says, Oh, how I love thy law, it is my meditation all the day. Thou through thy commandments hast made me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way, that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from the judgment, nor have I taught me that thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Now that's power. He says you're wiser than your enemies, you have more understanding than your teachers, and you and have more understanding than the ancients. And you just focus on the people now that God gave you. Don't ever focus on the ones that he hasn't given you. That's part of your problem. You get so worried about, well, they're saying this about me, they're saying that about me, they're thinking about this, they're thinking about that. Ah, man, go fishing. And out of your mouth comes the fruit that changes people's lives and 30, 40, 50 years of that. And brother, you said God use you for that long and God use you in situations that he wants to. And brother, after 30, 40 years, you're living in the tall timbers, brother. Life is good. The power of the fruitfulness of God versus the power of the fruitlessness of the world. The action of a living God in your life will always dwarf what every wicked people say and do to stop you because God just keeps pouring it on and you got your focus. I had to laugh at the trap shoot last couple weeks ago. Some of our little tykes wanted to shoot so they got them a shotgun and, you know, they 
they shot a couple of times, and some of them, you know, it, it hurts. I mean, it does. And they were crying, you know, I get it, man, I get it. And, I, you know, and that, the guy was really good. He says, well, that teaches you and lets you know that you're not ready for this yet because if it too hurts, and it, you know, it, 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 it whomps you pretty good. And I got watching that and thinking about that, and I sympathized with them, you know, those little guys. Because when I was a kid, <clears throat> my dad brought me my first 20-gauge shotgun for Christmas. And we were going to go rabbit hunting. And Christmas afternoon, and I was all excited about it. Christmas afternoon, he took me out to practice. Bought me a box of 20-gauge shells, put them in there. And I remember setting cans up there and shooting those things. And I'll tell you what, it hurt so bad. I mean, I didn't cry in front of my dad, but I was crying on the inside. And I, he'd put cans up, and I'd shoot it, you know. And, I mean, I kept on shooting it because he was excited, you know, and I was really excited till I started shooting it. And then I'm thinking, and I just gritted it, boy, and I did, oh, it just, it, it hurt. I had Winchester stamped in my shoulder off the butt plate when I went back home. It was black and blue. And I thought, how am I ever, ever going to do this? We went hunting about two weeks later. Season came in, and we're out there walking through the field, and I'm, I'm, I got it on, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, boy, and I got one. And all of a sudden, I stepped on this thing, and, boy, a big old bunny rabbit pops almost straight up and shoots straight out in front of me. Instinct, I cocked that gun, swung that thing down, and poof, missed him the first one, put another round in, and flipped him over with the second one. I ran over that rabbit, my first rabbit I ever shot in my life. I picked it up. My dad patted me on the back and said, that was a really good shot, son. You really recovered after you missed the first one. I was so excited. Later on, I thought to myself, you know what? I never felt the kick. You see, when I was just standing there doing nothing, shooting at tin cans, I felt the kick. But when I was dedicated and focused on stopping that rabbit, I never felt the recoil. That's what's wrong in Christianity. You know why you feel the recoil? Because you're not focused on nothing. You're sitting around just taking the shots, and it hurts. You get focused on what God is doing in your life. You get your bead drawn on a target that God got you on. You don't feel the kick. I'm telling you. Now, you little guys, it won't help you shooting a shotgun, but it'll help you in ministry. (laughs) And you know what? Nobody can take that from you. Donald Trump, bless his heart, in a bad and an economic time, a collapse, he could be a homeless person. We'll give a hot dog to him next week. But you know what? Your spiritual wealth, the fruit that comes from your putting out the Word of God and nobody can take that from you, nobody can take it. That's why the Bible says when you get saved, you build on that foundation gold, silver, precious stones. He's satisfied. The man is satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth. Now look at the last part of verse 14. And the recompense of a man's hand shall be rendered unto him. A reference to the judgment seat of Christ again for a saved man and a reference to the great white throne for an unsaved man. In the Bible, a man's hand will always be a reference to what he does in life, the things he does, his works. First time you find it in the Bible, the definitive part on it is Genesis 5.29. This is the first place you find it in the Bible. Where he says, he says uh, our work and toil of our hands. And from that far on in the Bible, every time you find a hand that's connected in a picture of somebody doing something, either good or bad, for the world or for God. Psalms 18 said, David says, he teaches my hands to war. Job 1.10 says, God bless the work of his hands. Psalms 8.6 says, that when God made everything, he gave the dominion to man over the works of his hands. Our hands represent our works, whether they're good or they're bad. And when an unsaved man stands before God, 
He's judged by his works. Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12 says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things were written in the books according to their works. Well, gee, at the great white throne judgment, I know it says the books were opened, but really God could just open one book, the book of Proverbs, and he could decide whether the guy was wise or foolish just based on that one book. He could judge him by the fruit that comes out of his lips or the transgression that comes out of his mouth. Now, when a Christian stands before God at the judgment street, he's judged for his works. I showed it to you last week, what he did with his hands after God saved him, based around those six questions. 1 Corinthians 3.13, I gave it to you last week, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall reveal every man's work of what sort it is. Now, in our case, I don't know if you picked this up or not, the difference between the two? An unsaved man stands before God and the books were open. Those books are the Word of God. When you and I stand before God, the judgment seat of Christ as Christian, there's no books. You see that? There's no opening of the Bible to find out what we did or didn't do. Oh, there's a book with an unsaved man. He judged out of the book. But there's no book opened at the judgment seat of Christ for you and me. You know why? Because all your life since you got saved, the Holy Spirit of God's been inside of you. I'm going to show you one of the most terrifying stories in all the Bible. Tucked away back there in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 24. One of the most terrifying yet the most amazing stories that you'll ever see. Some of you won't sleep tonight after this. I hope not anyhow. You know the story of Genesis chapter 24. We use it all the time. 19 principles on how to find a spouse. Somebody says, well, I went through that. What happened to my case? You only went to 17. You missed the last two. <clears throat> but beyond that, you know the story. Abraham wants a bride for his son Isaac. So he calls his eldest servant. And he says to him, go out there and find a bride for my son. And the story as you read it through there, that servant, whose name is Eleazar, goes out and he's looking and he finally comes and he comes to, a, he comes to the, uh, the well and there's, uh, there's this Rebecca lady and he has a conversation with her about the master. They go home to her parents and he tells the whole story and then he asks her two great questions. Well, one great question and she answers it back. He says to her after he laid out the whole thing about his Isaac, he says, Will you go with this man? And she says, I will go. Then the Bible says after she makes that commitment, she leaves her mom and her dad, and the Bible says she goes his way to meet Isaac. Now let me put it into a biblical, practical application for you. Abraham's a type of God the Father, greatest type in the Bible. Isaac's a type of Christ. Genesis chapter 22, he almost became the sacrifice. Carried the wood on his back like Christ carried the cross. Eleazar, 
His name is not given here in this chapter. You've got to go someplace else to find it out. And he's just called the servant. You know why? Because Eleazar is a type of the Holy Spirit of God, and the Holy Spirit of God seeks nothing for himself. He's the great unknown equation. Rebecca, she's a Gentile, a female Gentile, type of the Gentile church, me and you. And Abraham, God the Father, says, I want a son. I want a daughter. I want a wife for my son, Isaac, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he calls Eleazar, type of the Holy Spirit, go out into the world and find my son, a Gentile bride. So he loads up the camel train. And the camel train goes out. They come to that well and he finds her there. He tells her the story. He says, will you go? She says, I will go. And he brings her back to Isaac. We have the song that the boys sing over there when the camel train comes in. Oh, get ready. The evening shadows fall. Can't you hear? LAA's our call. There's a wedding going to be ready. The bride will soon be there when the camel train comes in. Right now, the day you got saved, you're on a journey to see your Isaac. And when you get to see your Isaac, you're going to marry him. You're the Gentile bride that God sent the Holy Spirit of God, Eleazar, to find for his son Isaac, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what an incredible picture that is. And in chapter 24, one of the most amazing stories in all the Bible, when they get back to Abraham and Isaac. And Isaac, type of Christ, picture the judgment seat of Christ. Isaac wants to know about their journey in life, where they went, what happened, who said what to who. In verse 66, Genesis chapter 24, 66, 66 books in your Bible. And in the last book of your Bible is the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 66, when Isaac, Christ, says, tell me about the journey. Rebecca didn't say a word. You won't say a word. The Bible says the servant told Isaac all where he'd been. The day you got saved, the Holy Spirit of God got sealed inside you, and you've been dragging him along in life everywhere you go. Oh, we all do it. We all rationalize our situation. We all don't like this or don't like that, or we don't do this because of this, or we justify it in our mind, and we got our, we got our, we got our, our questions to those, answers to those questions all laid out. But I want to tell you something. When your camel train comes in, and your Isaac, who before you marry him, is going to ask you where you've been the moment you try to open your mouth, the Holy Spirit of God is going to step out and tell every place we have been in our journey in life. He's going to tell who we said to what and whose spirit came from us. When our camel train comes in, God help us. In the Bible laid out in the book of Proverbs and throughout the Word of God, in closing, you have the four components of a man's life with God. You have man's heart. That's what he thinks about God. 
And that one will lead him to the next one. The second one is you have man's mouth. Where the man's heart is what he thinks about God, man's mouth is what he says about God. The third one is man's hands. Based on the heart and the mouth, it equals attitude and action. So a man's hands now, where the man's heart is what you think about God and man's mouth is what he says about God, man's hands is what he's willing to do for God. Then the fourth one is man's feet and his legs. Man's heart is what he thinks about God's. Man's mouth is what he says about God's. Man's hands is what he's willing to do for God. And man's feet and legs is how far he's willing to go for God and take his stand for God. Solomon chapter 5, and I'll leave you with this, talking about my Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15 says, His legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of gold. Marble's the hardest stone that there is. They make tombstones out of it because it endures for centuries. And it's a picture of Christ's legs because what Christ stands for is something that will never change. And in your life and my life, when we're like Christ, we have the things and the character qualities of Christ. His stand is like marble. It's unmovable. Your stand for Christ is unmovable. You take a marble statue and put it in the backyard and you can invite all your neighbors over and they can call it all kinds of funny names, call it all kinds of stupid names, make fun of it, laugh at it, yell at it, scream at it, cuss it up one side and down the other. You know what? Statue never flinches. It's made out of marble, the hardest rock known to man. And when you as a Christian, through the work of God, of your heart, your mouth, your hands and your feet, you decide to take your stand for God, it never bothers you what somebody thinks about you, says about you, because you know that at the end, you're going to come out of the trouble because your legs are made of marble and you stand for what's right. You find out what the Word of God says and then you take your stand on it. Well, we'll hold up there.